All right, guys, on today's episode of the Trade Busters podcast, you guys are in for a real treat. Uh, today's guest, he's been a huge influence on my own trading, not just his research, but you know the incredible lineup of guests that he's had on his podcast. Speaking of which, I had the distinct privilege of being a guest myself you know, just about a year ago, so it's, it's kind of timely, and things are coming, coming full circle now. He is, of course, the co-founder and chief investment officer at Newfound Research, and the host of one of my favorite podcasts, Flirting with Models. Corey Hofstein, welcome to the Trade Busters. Thank you for having me on, David. Uh, I guess it was a year ago you were on my podcast, season five. We're just about like mid late about, June. Yeah, we're thick thick in the middle of season six now. And uh, as you know, running a podcast, it's it's a labor of love when you do this. You've been trying to you've been trying to herd me to be on the podcast for a bit, and I kept saying, "Well, I have a baby. Well, I'm busy." I'm like, "Oh, I'm one of those horrible guests that keeps that keeps making it hard for me to record with them as well." So I appreciate you being patient with me. Yeah, no problem. I know you've had a lot of milestones. You know, uh, congrats on the new baby. You just Thank launched you. the ETF. Um, a lot of stuff going on, and I saw you posted about kind of your goals for the I don't know if it's like the next year or the next five years or something. Very ambitious. But uh, before we dive in, you know, usually, uh, as usual, just a quick disclaimer, everything on this podcast is, of course, always for informational, educational purposes only. Nothing should be construed as, you know, uh, investment advice. Always do your own due diligence when making investment decisions. Uh, Corey, I don't know if that covers you or if there's anything you need to say. I just I just like to add in that this isn't tax advice. It's not investment advice. It's not marital advice. It's not spiritual advice. We're not we're not giving advice, right? It's just two guys invest. Talking That's about right. It. Two guys invest talking about finance. Um, so and now there's something speaking of coming full circle, there's something I didn't tell you before we start, and that is that this is actually my one hundredth episode of Trade Busters. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, I was um and again, it was timely because I, I kind of, I think this would be kind of a wrap of my my quote unquote season three as well. I have kind of these arcs, and my first season was a lot of foundational stuff and putting out my ideas and stuff like expectancy hacking, premium capture, stuff I've gone over on your podcast. Season two was kind of like uh, not so much the fundamental strategies, but putting together in like a system. I came up with my strategy called the Trinity system. I added my my naive put selling strategy. I added some tail hedging and some kind of brought it together. But season three was where I kind of opened it up to talk about taking a step back. I had a lot of guests on and more on not just focus on options, but portfolio construction and thinking about things almost like the perspective of, of a fund manager. And so that's why research like yours and the guests you have on have been really influential to, and I've always kind of wanted to democratize that kind of knowledge to the retail crowd. And, and, and again, the ideas that I want to talk about with you, I think really kind of bring everything together, especially since they've been things I've implemented and things that I want to kind of really Put out there so again well, let me let me be a really bad guest and immediately just flip it on you and start asking you questions because congratulations on a hundred i don't think people realize how difficult it is to put out a podcast consistently on that schedule you've now put out more episodes than i have and i've been going for i think six years so a uh, huge congratulations to you i'm curious what has been sort of your your biggest takeaway so far i mean i know you know i know you've had the three seasons different arcs but I, f I find personally um, having guests on for me is a great way to learn. Has there been anything that's been like a really substantial takeaway with your guests? Um, really? Or just even reforming your thinking, having to package it up and make it, you know, uh, something you can distill into a podcast. You know, what's funny because 
for me, there wasn't like when I started this, it was just me recording random thoughts I had. I used to write these essays and I hated writing, so I just started recording. So it was more like my brain dump. But it was just like over time as I learned more, my own thinking, my processes kind of coalesced and then just evolved. And there was these kind of natural segues. So that's why I say like, I never took any breaks. It was just like, oh, here's like a nice point and I can kind of catch up and talk about what's going to change going forward. And so for me, it was more organic. But I think my takeaway is like, I use this as again, a tool as an outlet for sharing stuff that's going through my head. And I think just like, try not to force it. I know you put so much effort into your podcast, which is why like you do like hours of research. Some of my episodes are like five, 10 minutes. It's just me. I had a thought and I just put it out. So like, it's not like I have a hundred quality episodes, like guests lined up like you do. Um, but this season I have, I've had had a lot. So, um, you know, I think every, every podcast has its own cadence and its own approach. And I think it has to do with whatever works for the host. Like I, I know I do put a lot of upfront work in. I mean, you went through the process where there's at least an hour long pre-call and often some back and forth on the questions. And if guests have written papers or something, I make sure I, I dive into that. Um, I want to make sure that when I come to the podcast, I'm creating an arc in the questions that lead the listener through to a point where we can really get into the weeds with whoever I'm interviewing. But that's also, you know, I think part of it is I don't want to go into the podcast and get to that 40 minutes in and go like, um, uh, I'm not sure what to ask here. <laughs> right. I'm not a very natural conversational question. You know, like to me, I have to think about the questions. I want the time to pause. I'm not the type of person who can just get on a podcast and record for five minutes, whatever is going through my head. I'm more of a, I need to write it down. So, you know, I think the podcast reflects the host in many ways and uh, kudos to you for having the ability to just say, Hey, you want to know what I, I can put together five minutes of coherent speaking and just put it out there when I have a thought that's a, that's a real skill. And I'm envious of that. Yeah, I appreciate it. Well, speaking of which let, let's get into this. I know, I've obviously followed you a while and most of my audience are familiar with you. But for those who may not be, why don't we go into a little bit of your background, just to kind of your trajectory of your career arc. Tell us about what is Newfound Research and what do you guys do? Yeah, so really quickly uh, in terms of background. So I, I pursued my undergraduate degree at Cornell for computer science, my master's degree in computational finance from Carnegie Mellon. So it's back uh, pre-GFC when I decided to pursue the master's degree, graduated right into the teeth of the GFC. Most of the master's degrees is a financial engineering program that was based on learning things like stochastic calculus. It's multidisciplinary finance, programming, mathematics, statistics. A lot of what we learned was what Wall Street wanted at the time, which was how do you price complex derivatives? Unfortunately, uh, most of those jobs went away. I was lucky at the time that during my undergraduate studies, I had been gotten really interested in building all sorts of um, tactical ETF portfolios. I got really interested in exploring portfolio construction. I got really interested in using ETFs. I ended up coming up with some trend following signals that I think were pretty unique. I can talk a little bit about what makes them unique and ended up through happenstance, getting connected to a local asset manager who said, hey, this is a really interesting concept, the ability to build an all ETF portfolio that can go to cash, would love to license your signals from you. 
broke college student. Uh, this gentleman offered to pay me in basis points. I had no idea what a basis point was at the time. But as long as there was beer money, that's great. Uh, ended up creating this company called Newfound Research that was basically meant to house the contract. It was a data contract. I just basically licensed them data. And that was it. It was named Newfound because Newfound was a lake I used to uh, spend my summers on up in New Hampshire. And candidly, I expected the whole business to go under in less than 12 months. Um, but during graduate school, uh, the gentleman who was using my tactical signals was able to get a sub-advisory agreement and actually raised a billion dollars in the mutual fund. And so all of a sudden I had positive cash flow for a business. I always had entrepreneurial aspirations and um, it gave me the very fortuitous opportunity to just try to cut out on my own. I will say the business has evolved substantially since then. I no longer do quantity, you know, licensed quantitative data. We've transitioned and did so around 2013 into a more traditional asset manager. Um, if you were to ask me sort of the, the tagline today, what's the spiel on newfound research? I would say um, that we're a quantitative investment management firm that is striving to help investors unlock the benefits of diversification. We do that by providing them access to alternative and capital efficient investment strategies in ETFs, mutual funds, and model portfolios. For those of whom that was complete marketing gobbledygook gibberish, I'll distill it one step further because I, that's how marketing usually goes. And basically what I'm trying to do is create pre-packaged solutions for people to, to be able to thoughtfully incorporate leverage into their portfolio, to be able to do what institutions have done for decades, which is use alternatives as an overlay to core stock and bond positions. Most of the financial advisors I work with can't do that for either compliance or operational reasons. They can't trade the types of derivatives that would be necessary and so I try to prepackage those trades into mutual funds or ETFs or create entire model portfolios for them to subscribe to that allows them to unlock that opportunity. So we'll talk about your new ETF shortly. But so ETFs and mutual funds, I understand. Can you explain a little bit about what exactly a model portfolio is and what is subscribing to that mean? Yeah, absolutely. So model portfolios are something that really grew in popularity as ETFs grew in popularity. Um, they were something that existed in the mutual fund world, but post 2008, you had the emergence of what were called TAMPs, turnkey asset management programs. You can think of a TAMP as just a technology intermediary. So you have your asset manager, and what they do is they create a portfolio on a TAMP, and then you have a financial advisor who engages with that TAMP and subscribes client portfolios to that asset manager strategy. Uh, whenever the asset manager makes an update, the TAMP sits in the middle and the TAMP trades the strategy on behalf of the asset manager within the financial advisor client's brokerage accounts. Now, this is something that originally existed. You could do separately managed accounts this way. It just basically disintermediated or, or made it so that the, the asset manager no longer had to have a trading function. There was a technology provider in the middle that could trade, so the asset manager could focus on what portfolio did they want. And then you could have the, um, the TAMP would actually do the execution. As ETFs became more popular, it became easier to, to develop holistic portfolios. Give someone a balanced risk portfolio of global stocks and bonds that you could, say, tactically manage or dynamically change or 
create factor tilts. And so a model portfolio is really just meant to be a turnkey solution. Uh, an advisor could take a client's, the, their entirety of their net worth and subscribe it to that portfolio. And then me as the asset manager, I'm making recommended changes to the portfolio over time, what securities, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, ETFs to buy. And then there's a technology platform in the middle that's usually placing the trades on my behalf in the client account. So it's just, it's meant, it's a way to, um, the, the real important distinguishing factor here is really from a regulatory perspective, it's not considered assets under management. It's considered assets under advisement because I don't actually trade the assets. They're not considered to be my assets. I advise upon the assets, but they're not under my technical management. So with the advent of like all the newer liquid products, the ETFs, um, and is your focus now more on those types? Like, do you, is the model portfolio still a big part of your business, or is that going? Kind of yeah, nice? I mean, to get into the business side of the business, right? So, asset management. There's investment management, which is a huge component. But then, running an asset manager, right? You have to you have to grow. Um, I look at it as a very symbiotic relationship. I hate that sort of MBA word, but the way we think about it is the model portfolios that we offer are empowered by the ETFs and mutual funds that we run. So we'll use our own ETFs and mutual funds within the models, and then we'll charge nothing for the models. So you can, we're not putting an overlay fee. The way we get paid is, you know, if, if you allocate a dollar to the models and within each model, there's 20% of our own funds, we're getting fees on the 20 cents that are in our own funds. Our models are unique because they use our ETFs and mutual funds. And then the allocations to the models help grow the ETFs and mutual funds over time, which then make them hopefully more appealing to advisors and individuals who wouldn't necessarily want to subscribe to a model portfolio. So it's supposed to be a very symbiotic relationship as a means to grow the business. I will also say from a sales perspective, thinking about this again as an asset manager, um, model portfolio business tends to be stickier. You're managing a much larger proportion of someone's money. And you tend to have a much more, I don't want to say consistent return profile necessarily, but a return profile that's that's sort of closer to their benchmark. So if I manage a very weird esoteric alternative in a mutual fund, well, there are behavioral problems that go along with that sometimes. Um, if you sell that strategy to an advisor and it goes through a three-year bad period, the advisor is going to look at that line item and say, I don't want it in the portfolio anymore. But if I'm managing the entirety of the portfolio, well, it, the advisor can't kick the fund out. And so long as the portfolio is still behaving well for the client, right? There's another thing in the portfolio that we bought that is zigging when this other strategy is underperforming and zagging. You know, they they can still be happy at the holistic portfolio level. So there are um, sales and business advantages to running both different sides of the business. So for us, model portfolios are incredibly important, something we continue to focus on. And again, for us, what's key is using our own product as a key differentiator as to why our models are different than, say, something you could get from Vanguard or BlackRock. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned kind of the business aspect, because I was just thinking if if you're... Kind of ETFs or you know the the model portfolios are using those same models functionally. Couldn't they just buy the ETF and get the same? Exposure? Yeah. So let me get let me give like an example. Um, and I guess I'll just so we we recently launched an ETF 
right? That gives you for every dollar. Let's invest. just say no RSVT, which full yeah, disclosure is return stacked. Yeah. Bonds and managed futures, RSBT. Um, sorry, you, you were about to, to have a disclosure when I interrupted you. Yeah, I was gonna say disclosure. I I own some shares, you know, so it's something that that I I support and I believe in. So yeah, disclosure, I own a lot of shares as well, <laughs> but I appreciate your business. Um, so so RSBT, uh, which we recently launched. For every dollar you invest in the fund, the fund strives to give you a dollar of for U.S. fixed income exposure plus a dollar of managed futures exposure, right? So, so you're ideally getting two dollars of exposure here: one of bonds, one of managed futures. What does that mean? Well, let's say you are a standard 60/40 investor. You have 60% stocks and 40% bonds. If you were to sell 20% of your bonds and buy RSBT instead. The idea is that RSBT is going to continue to give you that bond exposure. You will maintain that 60-40, but it'll also now create an overlay of 20% of managed futures on your portfolio. So you are now a 60-40-20, where that 20 is managed futures. So right to distinguish between the model portfolios versus the ETFs, um, in the model portfolios, we might provide that 60 20 20 right we might say hey here's 60 percent global equities here's 20 percent bonds and here's a 20 percent allocation to rsbt and and an advisor might subscribe their client to that entire portfolio giving the client the 60 20 20 whereas the other choice they have is they have to build that portfolio themselves using rsbt and they have to make the choices around what equities what other bonds for many advisors at this point, um, the industry has changed in that they don't see themselves as asset managers. That's more of a legacy concept in the industry. Many see themselves as financial planners, where the asset management is a means to an end. And so finding a thoughtfully constructed model portfolio that allows them to help their clients achieve their financial goals with a greater degree of certainty is what's important. But they don't want to be in the weeds building the portfolios necessarily. And so these model portfolios have grown dramatically, um, like, uh, you know, probably hundreds of billions to, I, you know, I would guess there might be over a trillion dollars tracking model portfolios as they've grown over the last decade. Got it. And so that segues into my next question. And I, I've been listening to a lot of your podcasts and, you know, you talk with Jason a lot on parts of finance. I just listened, for instance, uh, your episode with Bill Brewster a while back on uh, Business Brew. And the idea that, you know, these allocators, they have to kind of pick and choose and when to allocate or like if you want to drop, you know, they don't want to drop out the 60-40 because, uh, you know, you might have some dispersion with, you know, once you pick an alternative, right? And the idea that you can kind of bring this in and kind of keep that exposure and it's additive. But the idea of rebalancing, and I know one of your, your favorite pet topics, uh, rebalance timing luck, and I wanted to first, um, can you, can, in your words, uh, explain what that is and why it matters? And because I had some thoughts that I had on it, but I want to kind of get your take on that first. Yeah, I think I'm Don Quixote <laughs> tilting at windmills when it comes to rebalance timing. Like I, I've, I talk about it more than anyone. I've written a number of papers on it. I was by no means the first person to identify it, but I think at this point I've probably spilled more ink on it than just about any researcher in the industry, which I'm not sure whether I should be 
proud or or a little bit sad about that. But um, I it, this is one of those concepts that I think is really powerfully important and has can have a tremendous impact on people's realized portfolio results without them even being aware of it. And once you're aware of it, I think the fix is very easy. Um, but people often aren't even aware that it could have such a profound impact. So so what is rebalanced timing luck? Well, hopefully the name uh, elucidates it a little, but it's the basic idea that when you rebalance your portfolio can actually have a profound impact on the results of your strategy. What is let's let's use an example to maybe make this cleaner. Um, let's say you run a, a value stock picking strategy, um, and once a year you rank all the stocks in the U.S. by say their their price to earnings, and you choose the cheapest fifty, you buy them equal weight, and then you hold on for the rest of the year. Well, as it turns out, if you run that exact process every December you can have uh, an entirely different set of stocks that you pick than if you ran the process every June. Identical process, you're still going to rank all the stocks by their PE, you're still going to choose the cheapest 50, you're still going to equal weight them. But because when you chose to rebalance is different, the opportunity set changes, and so you can end up buying a substantially different set of securities, which is going to lead to meaningful performance dispersion between those two alternatives. Of course, it doesn't have to be just June and December. You could do any month or any day of the year. Uh, as it turns out, this matters for things like strategically rebalanced portfolios. So someone, again, let's use a 60-40 investor. A lot of people are used to rebalancing end of year but if you rebalanced in March over the last decade, you actually ended up doing exceptionally well for the last 20 years because the 2008 crisis bottomed right in March and you had March 2020. And so if you had rebalanced every March, you ended up buying equities at almost the perfect time versus September uh, was at one of the worst times. Now, there's no reason to believe that that will necessarily persist. There's nothing magical about rebalancing in March, and there's nothing bad about rebalancing in September necessarily. These There are these concepts of seasonality effects, but the idea with rebalanced timing luck is all else held equal. Like Your choice of when to rebalance shouldn't matter. We're going to ignore the seasonality effects for a minute. And so um, you end up taking substantial risk sort of this unintended bet of when by just choosing one point, right? So this this affects strategically managed portfolios. This affects tactically managed portfolios. This affects factor portfolios. This affects option-based portfolios. Um, and to the tune of hundreds of basis points of dispersion per year. So I know I'm rambling a bit, but let me give one more example, a very real-life example. Um, there's There's this a little bit of market history called the immaculate rebalance. So your listeners may have heard of research affiliates. Research affiliates is a quantitative asset management firm based out of Newport beach, California, Rob Arnott founded the firm and he founded it based on this idea called fundamental indexing. It's really just value investing, but he's a brilliant marketer. He called it fundamental indexing. And the basic idea was you were going to buy companies in relation to their fundamental footprint, which is basically just a value tilt. The initial index rebalanced once a year, 
and I believe it was every March. And coming out of the 2008 crisis, uh, they rebalanced in March and ended up having just really lights out performance. I think they beat the benchmark by 10 percentage points in 2009. About a year later, a couple of researchers from Robico ended up saying, well, what would have happened if that fundamental index didn't rebalance in March? What if it rebalanced in January or June or September? And what they found was that if you had rebalanced in March, yes, you got this unbelievable outperformance, 10 percentage points. But if Rob Arnott had not arbitrarily decided the index rebalanced in March, if he had decided it rebalanced in September, that rebalance actually underperformed the benchmark. And so... There are people who argue the entire trajectory of that firm changed based upon the naive luck that was they just happened to rebalance in March. That if Rob Arnott had arbitrarily chosen that the index rebalanced in, Sept in September, that firm would not be the hundreds of billions of dollars it is today. So what's the solution to all this, right? I'm going to guess your next question. All right, Corey, uh, you've convinced me this is a potential problem. If you get lucky, great, but but you can see how the luck could cut against you. What's the solution to this? And the solution is something that's called staggered rebalancing, which says let's let's use that Rob Arnott example with the fundamental indices. Every quarter, he's buying stocks relative to their fundamental tilts. Well, what you would do is you would say every quarter, I'm going to rebalance one fourth of my portfolio. So in March, I'm going to rebalance a quarter of the portfolio. In June, I'm going to rebalance a quarter. In September, I'm going to rebalance a quarter. In December, I'm going to rebalance a quarter. Or you could rebalance more frequently. Once a month, I'm going to rebalance a twelfth of it. Um, and that would maintain the annual rebalance that Rob wanted. That sort of has to do with the decay cycle of the alpha that he's looking at. But not create an emphasis on any particular one date as being the point of meaningful rebalancing. You know, what's interesting is um, the way we run our option strategies has a lot of kind of similarities. And I mentioned, for example, we have a put selling strategy with no signals, whereas we just take our entire, you know, we're trying to sell a certain amount of premium every year. And we, we split that up into kind of a daily entry as opposed to once a month or once a week. And the whole principle is anytime there's a timing element involved, there's a path dependency, right? And the more you can kind of spread out the at-bats, you kind of kind of squash down that that path dependency of the portfolio. But what's interesting for me is like when I found your podcast, um, I had gone back and started listening from the beginning. And I think even before I saw your work or you talking about that that phrase, rebalance timing luck, I listened to your very first episode, season one, episode one with Adam Butler which was hugely influential and his entire takeaway, you know, cause I think, I think the episode is called the ultimate gift was at the end. He mentioned when there's things that deal with timing and, and this was more about kind of moving average look backs and momentum and what's a two, 200 day versus a 30 day versus 21.6 day. The idea is you don't have to choose any one, you know, approach. And if you blend them all or ensemble them and, and they think the phrase, uh, his, his quote was like, the sharp of the blended portfolio is higher than the sharp of like 80% of all the individual ones. And so what I'm kind of wondering is like, why is this such a big deal? It seems almost like common sense, right? Again, mm -hmm. the path dependency. So like, cause I think I've mentioned, I've heard you say on Twitter before or just in, in, on podcasts, like you get pushback 
is it basic is it too hard to implement but you would think if if, if firms have a large amount of capital it's easy to split it up into 112th or 126th or wh whatever it is so yeah. what's like the big idea of like why it's not like basically the the status quo like that should be yeah. what everyone does well i think it should be the status quo um yeah, this is something to your point, Adam Butler talked about a related concept in that very first episode, right? So I think of like these three different axes of decision making, you know, what you're investing in, how you're making those decisions, and when you're making those decisions. Adam's point was more on the ensemble of the how, right? If you're running a very simple 200 day moving average system, well, is 200 days any more magical than 199 versus 201? Adam would say no. And unless you think there's something particularly magical about the parameters you're using to run your model, you should diversify. And in almost every case, when you diversify, there is an improvement in sharp ratio versus what you're looking at um, of, of all the underlying undiversified opportunities. The same thing tends to happen when you look at the when aspect, right? So, so if you were to rebalance an option-based strategy mid-month versus end-of-month um, versus first week of the month. Those are all different potential implementations, sort of counterfactuals. And what you find is that if you were to diversify across all of them, you end up not necessarily with a better sharp ratio, because it's not always sharp ratio, but you end up massively condensing the potential dispersion and terminal wealth that you right. end up with, which is very important for folks who are in financial planning. Why doesn't everyone do this, right? They don't do it on the parameter side that Adam talked about. They don't do it on the rebalanced timing luck side. By the way, I think if I go back and look at the first time I wrote about rebalanced timing luck, it was in 2013. I think I've been talking about this for a decade. And I won't say that I had a high profile in 2013, but I do think I have a higher profile today and I still can't get people to pay attention to it. I think it's twofold. One, um, there are a large number of firms that do it, right? So when you talk to a lot of quant firms, especially active quant firms, like this is something they control for. AQR controls for it. Research affiliates controls for it. I control for it. O'Shaughnessy Asset Management controls for it. Like there's a lot of quant firms that do control for this. Where it doesn't seem to get controlled for is at the index level, which is important, right? So if your benchmark, say, is the Russell 1000 value and that reconstitutes once a year, well, that choice of when it reconstitutes has a meaningful impact on the performance of the benchmark. And if you're getting compared to that benchmark, you can underperform for a reason that has nothing to do with your process not being as good. It's just the benchmark got a lucky rebalance period. So that's that's something that doesn't seem to get addressed. And during the 2010s, there was a huge proliferation of indexed ETFs. So they're not passive. Like they're technically from a regulatory perspective, they're considered passive. But you're talking about, say, like the iShares Momentum ETF that tracks the MSCI USA Momentum Index that index rebalances twice a year. Why doesn't that rebalance every month? I think there's two issues at play, three issues at play. One, I'm not sure the people who built the indices were aware that this is a problem when they built them. So once the index is out and live, it becomes much more difficult to then change the index. And some and of these not, have been out for years and years, right? Years and years. Okay. Yeah, they've been out for decade plus. 
Um, so they're not all convinced necessarily, or they're not aware. There is an awareness problem. I will, despite me banging the drum as hard as I can, I do believe some people still aren't aware of this issue. It's a very large industry. Then once the once the index gets created, it's non-trivial to change the index. Um, credit to research affiliates when they when they got lucky with the immaculate rebalance, they did then go through the work with their FTSE indices to introduce this staggered rebalancing solution back in 2010, I believe it was, or 2011. So kudos to them. That is non-trivial to do an index update, particularly when you have hundreds of millions to billions of dollars tracking your index. I have also heard from people who would say that the solution of staggered rebalancing introduces more trading. Um, that is true. You have to trade more frequently. You're, you're trading with less of your assets, so hopefully it's less of an impact, but it creates more trading, which from the partners within the in, investment ecosystem, right, means that the ETF, excuse me, means the index provider has to update and run the process more frequently. They have to disseminate that to their fund partners who then have to update, let's say it's an ETF, update the basket of securities that they're willing to accept in a create redeem, who has to work with banks to either do a heartbeat trade to rebalance or has to work with market makers, right, to make sure that they're hedging to the new basket, all of which creates sort of a, a disruption within the industry from an actual operational perspective. So I have heard some people just say, yes, Corey, that is true. But honestly, unless someone goes out and calculates the counterfactuals to which like the MSCI Momentum ETF runs, unless I go through and say, well, instead of June and December, let me show you what March and September would have done. No one really knows what the impact, whether it was got lucky or not. You need someone who does all that legwork. And, um, and so there's really no like catalyst. There's no reason for these firms to, to take on the extra operational burden other than I think it's arguably the right thing to do from an asset management perspective or an investment management perspective. Yeah, it's interesting because it always comes back to these kind of business-related uh, decisions and then the frictions that exist within the system. But I guess that's, I mean, I guess it doesn't really impact what we do because at the retail level or just anyone managing portfolio, like these indexes, they're, they're, it's almost kind of arbitrary the way they set it up and they're not trying to outperform anything per se but if you're managing assets or portfolio like this concept isn't necessarily going to add any alpha but it's like again it's going to reduce that dispersion and that kind of that that path dependency of the terminal of terminal wealth so i think yeah. that's like a huge factor um, well if i can yeah. if i can just add something and i don't mean to cut you off i apologize i know I know I'm just absolutely hogging all the all the airtime here, but but I just one thing I really want to stress for for retail investors, and again, this isn't advice, but I often think in this industry there's this idea of, well, let's say you want to build a portfolio that has a value tilt, you need to find the one value fund, right? Whether it's an ETF or a mutual fund, and that's what you're buying, and and you're trying to create manager alpha. What I would argue is unless people think they have a particular edge in really identifying manager alpha, which is incredibly difficult um right there are entire consulting firms built around it you can just say i'm going to buy a handful of managers so as an example in my personal account uh in my pa before we launched a managed futures fund 
I wanted some managed futures exposure. I had some allocated to some hedge funds, but I had some other money that needed to be more liquid. I wanted to put it in some mutual funds. I didn't think I had a particular advantage of picking, say, the best manager. And so what I did is I went through all the different managed futures mutual funds that were out there, found the ones that I liked from a process perspective, and then allocated equally across them. I held a basket of four or five funds with the idea being that I, I, yes, one of them would be the best, one of them would be the worst. But if I continued to rebalance across them, I was minimizing the dispersion of the results of my portfolio and getting a return profile that looked much more like sort of a benchmark average of managed futures, which is what I wanted. You can do the same thing with value. You can do the same thing with with other investments. So what I would stress is the way to try to solve this, if you can't control the investments yourself, is to diversify across multiple managers who are running a slightly different process and rebalancing at slightly different times that can be a way to try to control this. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And, and like I said in, at the top of the show, this season has been about kind of educating retail to approach investing more from like a manager standpoint and, and portfolio construction. So we've addressed kind of the rebalancing, the timing aspect, and then now there's kind of the what. And then this brings up to the the, the other big topic, which the topic return stacking, which, uh, you know, interestingly enough, is something that I had already been doing before you know i came on your pod um and you know and, and just a quick reminder like i had this one mandate where i literally just bought and held the index and i was stacking a little bit of alpha via you know an overlay of options and that was return stacking right um but at the time you brought up this concept of portable alpha um can you can you talk a bit about what that is or you know how did that term yeah. come about and 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 yeah what what is that yeah this is an idea that goes back to the 1980s let me rewind really quickly. Why do we care about any of this, right? Like, let's just inform the discussion of like, who who gives a shit? Because um, most of this conversation is about alternatives, not just buying stocks and bonds, but doing something else with your money. And it's not that alternatives are good. It's that diversification is good, right? When people talk about diversification being the only free lunch, I think this is really key for financial planning. If you can invest in, you know, two things that have the same expected return and are uncorrelated, the probability of achieving your end goals goes up dramatically versus just investing in one thing. You can invest in three things with the same expected return and zero correlation to each other, right? That cone of uncertainty continues to collapse and your, and your probability of achieving your outcomes, your stated return objectives continues to go up. So it's not that like alternative investing is a is a good thing. What's good is diversification. And it just so happens that when you sort of look outside and say, what can I invest in? Well, there's only a few major things you can really invest in. Like there's stocks and bonds. And maybe you could argue the volatility risk premium is slightly different than the equity risk premium. You might argue credit is its own thing. I know plenty of people who say it isn't. And then you get into this world of alternatives, which tends to be strategies that are not drawing a PL from the underlying asset, from the cash flow of the asset, but are drawing a PL from the trading that they're doing. And that trading PL can be constructed in a way that it is definitively uncorrelated to stocks and bonds. Okay, so alternatives might be interesting because they give us diversification. Diversification is good. So let's at least explore this concept. Then the question becomes, well, how do I include alternatives in my portfolio? 
Um, cause if I, if I have a hundred dollars and I'm allocating to stocks and bonds and I need to make room for alternatives, it means I'm selling stocks and bonds to make room. And back in the 1980s, PIMCO realized, well, we don't actually necessarily need to do that because we can invest in things like futures contracts and swaps if we want to get the beta of equities and bonds. So for example, if I have a 60-40 portfolio, I can take, and I'm trying to invest $100, that's $60 in stocks. And I can take that $60 and go buy the S&P 500 ETF, or I can go buy the individual components of the S&P 500, or I can put $5 in cash and use it as collateral to buy S&P E-mini futures. And those E-mini futures are going to give me the full P&L, if I size them correctly, of the $60 of exposure to the S&P, but I only had to use $5 cash as collateral. And then I've got the other $55 that I can do with whatever I want. If I keep them in T-bills, then the total return of the portfolio looks very much like the S&P 500. But what PIMCO said with Portable Alpha is, well, that's where that's the money we should now take and invest in actual alpha, right? And, and this idea is called alpha-beta separation. Like separate beta, get it through capital-efficient means where we only have to use a little bit of capital to get the full notional exposure, and then use the remaining capital that we freed up in the portfolio to invest in true alpha sources. And this is something institutions did for decades. Um, they continue to do some incredibly successfully. There were some hiccups in 2008 that I'd, I'd love to dive into because I think there's right and wrong ways to do this. But what we've tried to do at Newfound is take this concept and say, look, most individuals don't want to manage derivatives. They either can't, they don't know how, don't want to, um, don't want to take that risk. They might not have access to interesting alternatives. How can we take this as a prepackaged concept, put it, you know, put it in a mutual fund, put it in an ETF, give them a single ticker they can buy and get that portable alpha into their portfolio? You know what's so funny? Uh, you mentioned about uh, the fact that most people don't want to deal with derivatives or don't understand or whatever, either at the retail level or institutional level. But I guess like this whole concept of overlaying and leverage. I mean, it's like, you know, leverage is like a scary word sometimes, but because we specialize in options or anyone that trades options, they should understand leverage, should understand how margin works. So again, it was funny that I've been doing this all along. And so again, I was taking these option strategies and like realizing that you don't have to have a cash account, right? Cash, equity, whatever underlying, if there's a value there, they're marginable and they can be the collateral for your option strategy. So we've been overlaying stuff for all along. But the the big change was realizing now like we don't have to stack on top of some kind of vanilla index, right? Now there's all these different products. And it is it's kind of funny because like, you know, you have a leverage, I shouldn't call it leverage. RSBT, for instance, there's there's leverage exposure because one dollar gets you two dollars of exposure. But if I have that in my account and, and my brokerage lets me margin against it, I can basically leverage on top of that. And again, I'm not saying, you know, if, if for the uneducated, don't go crazy with leverage, but there's so much capital efficiency created now. And the entire MO of my podcast in the beginning was just about the options, about the strategies I've run, but now it kind of branched out. And so I'm like, I get these guests on to talk about different products, different ideas. And it was kind of timely that you have this 
product now, RSBT, like you mentioned, stacking the the trend following on bond exposure. And of course, I listen to a lot of podcasts, uh, for instance, um, Top Traders Unplugged, where they talk about a lot of trend following. So I really subscribe to the idea and believe that there is alpha there, but I don't want to necessarily implement trend following and I don't want to trade all these markets. So having products like this, right? Whereas in the past, I could allocate to a manager and get that exposure, but then you lose some capital efficiency to run your own stuff if, if you do kind of trade your own thing. And so now to have something, be able to bring it in-house and then stack on top of that, that's for me, it's been kind of liberating. And part of the reason I want to get you on, um, can we, are you willing to talk about a little bit about the the replication process? Because RSBT yeah. is a replication. Um, Absolutely. It's not like uh, Jason over at Muni where they're kind of housing managers in-house um, so can we yeah, talk I about can, I can about chat that? about that. Uh, if I can just put like sort of a period at the end of the sentence on the portable alpha thing. One of the, the big points behind portable alpha is that there are certain areas of the market where alpha is harder to find and areas where alpha is easier to find. So for example, many people would argue it is almost impossible to find alpha in S and P 500 stocks at this point, just it is so difficult to pick stocks and beat the market uh, with any reasonable degree of confidence that a lot of people have thrown in the towel there, right? So what they might say is, well, I'm actually not, that's not where I want to take my active risk. I think I can find a manager who can deliver alpha in, I don't know, relative value options trading much better than I can find a manager who can deliver alpha in picking stocks. But I still want that stock beta, right? So what I can do is I can say, let me take right my $5 or $10, use it as cash collateral to buy equity futures and take the remaining money and put it to a manager who can deliver alpha in an area that I think the alpha is better. When you put the whole picture together, you still have your equity beta plus this alpha component. It's just that the alpha component is in an area you have a higher degree of confidence in. And that's why alpha beta separation is particularly a, a powerful approach. Transitioning entirely to the return stacked bonds and managed futures ETF, you mentioned that the managed futures approach we take is a replication-based approach, and and that's correct. So when we built this strategy, I partnered with Adam Butler at Resolve, who you mentioned, and we both have this philosophy that we would want to take an ensemble-based approach, that if we were trying to deliver more or less generic managed futures exposure what we were going to want to do is build out a large number of different managed futures um, approaches and average them all together, almost like a virtual fund of funds. And as we started to go down that road, we said, you know, really what we want to do is just give people the benchmark. For us, the benchmark was the SockGen trend index. And no matter what we chose for our ensemble, there was still a bias, right? Did we happen to bias uh, our trend signals long? Did we happen to bias them short versus the benchmark? And it wasn't a bias we wanted to take. So we said, well, what if we just tried to replicate the benchmark itself? And so that's the approach that actually is the one we, we took to market, which is we use a couple of different statistical techniques, which I'm happy to go into, to try to figure out what the actual managers within the SockGen trend index are holding at any given time. And then we try to replicate that basket. Uh, For people who've never heard of the SockGen trend index, it is an index of currently 10 of some of the largest liquid trend following CTAs. Um, There are some requirements they have to be willing to report performance daily. So you get daily returns of the index, which is really nice. 
it's all pure trend following managers. And they're some of the the largest uh, managers out there. They're, they're, if you know the managed futures space, they're, they're household names. So um, I guess, yeah, can you go into a little bit about, so it's the, the 10 largest firms, you have their numbers daily. And I guess as, as much or as little as you're willing to share, how do you yeah. take those daily numbers and try and figure out what their what their exposure is? Yeah, so let me. I'm going to use an analogy here because I, I think sometimes that's simpler. Um, let's say I was trying to replicate the performance of Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, right? I didn't want to buy Berkshire Hathaway, I, I or I couldn't buy Berkshire Hathaway. I just want to replicate his returns. Well, one way of doing that is that I look at the recent returns of Berkshire Hathaway stock, and I look at all the potential companies that are trading publicly listed, and I run a regression. I run a mathematical approach where I say, can I find the mix of stocks, not only what stocks you know to hold, but what proportion of my money to put in them that gives me a return pattern that is as close as possible to Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway's return as possible, right? So um, basically trying to unearth without any idea of how he picks stocks or necessarily what's in his portfolio, like statistically replicate what he's doing, replicate the return stream. Um, The pros of this approach, right, is that I don't have to care how he picks stocks. Um, And in fact, it may be that he can buy stuff in the private market that I can't buy in the public market but through a statistical approach, I might be able to find proxies, right? So the statistical approach will will do its best to mimic the portfolio as, as purely as possible. The problem becomes, well, I need a certain amount of data to do that, right? And so maybe Warren Buffett doesn't have a high degree of turnover. I could look at the last 100, 200 days of returns and try to figure out what portfolio replicates his. But the same isn't necessarily true for trend following managers, right? Who can turn over their portfolio instantaneously. Uh, We go back to March, March 8th, 9th, 10th, where bonds had a substantial rally during the SVB crisis. And you had uh, trend following managers go from very, very short bonds to flat bonds within a day or two. If I was looking at 100 days of returns to try to figure out what managed futures managers are actually holding... I wouldn't be able to replicate that. So so what I have to do is only look at a couple of days. I could look at five days, 10 days, 20 days, 50, 30 days, but I can't look at a huge window of time. And, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to use that regression technique. I'm going to look at the returns of the SOC Gen Trend Index. I'm going to use a basket of global futures contracts. We use 27 of them trading in the US and Europe. And what we try to say is if we can find the basket that as closely as possible and as robustly as possible, replicates the recent returns, we'll assume that that basket is correct for the next day. And then we'll run the process over. We call that the top-down approach. The other way you could do this is what we call the bottom-up approach, which is saying, I don't want to be agnostic to how Warren Buffett picks his stocks. I actually want to figure out how he picks his stocks. And so you do all this legwork and you say, well, it turns out Warren Buffett picks quality low volatility stocks trading out a slight discount and then levers them 1.6 times like that process replicates more or less what he does and so instead of trying to look at berkshire's returns i say i've got now that i've got this process i'm going to build out that process 
And every day I'm going to run that process and, and it's going to tell me what stocks to buy. So translating that into the managed future space, what we did is we built out all these managed futures trend following programs and then said, what mix of these trend following programs gets you the returns of the stock gen trend index? And what you find is that um, to replicate the, the stock gen trend index, you end up with trend following programs that are anywhere from like six months to call it 18 months in length. They tend to be on a weighted average around nine months, tends to be the trend speed, um, regardless of whether you're talking bonds, commodities, currencies, or equities. From a risk attribution basis, the index generally looks like it's about 25% risk in equities, bonds, commodities, and currencies. So it seems to be equal weight across those categories. Um, and what we're doing is basically saying once we found the machinery that we think replicates how the index actually operates, uh, then what we do is we can actually run those trend following programs every day that tell us what to buy and sell. And so that's a bottom-up approach. The advantage being we can react at the same speed. It is in and of itself a trend following strategy, a generic trend following strategy. We can react at the same speed as the managers uh, that are, we're actually trying to track because we think we have the same or at least machinery that looks like theirs. The con is if they have meaningful style drift over time. So if they say no longer are as a category, you know, um, on average nine month trend length, the entire industry moves to short term three months, we might miss that. If they suddenly start introducing a contract that we don't trade and they use it heavily, we might miss that. Um, so that, so there are pros and cons to both approaches. And so what we do is we say, actually, we, we found that the optimal blend of them was 30% top down, 70% 70 70 bottom up. That helps you track the SOC Gen trend index sort of as closely as possible. But that that blend of 30-70 seems to maximize the diversification opportunity between the two approaches. I like that. Almost, It's another ensemble approach, basically. Exactly. Whenever you can't pick one, you just pick both. I have a quick question. It's more like a detail. Because if you're stacking... You've got the overlay of the bond exposure, but my understanding is these, um, you know, CTAs and the trend following firms, they're trading capital efficient vehicles as it is. So I'm assuming their cash might be kept in bonds or some kind of yield. So are you getting kind of double exposure or is my understanding not necessarily question. correct? That's a great question. So let's talk about a generic managed futures manager. Like if you were to buy a mutual fund, right? A hedge fund might be different because they might allow you to just allocate a little bit of capital, but a mutual fund. If you want a dollar of managed futures exposure, you buy a dollar of that fund. They're going to keep that dollar pretty much in T-bills. And then those T-bills are going to be used as cash collateral to trade the futures. But you, So you got a full dollar of T-bills and a full dollar of, of um, the managed futures strategy. What we do is instead of holding T-bills, we, hold, we take 50 cents and we basically put it in the Barclays Ag, in an ETF that replicates the Barclays Ag. And then we have 50 cents that serves as collateral to the managed futures program, as well as a ladder of treasury futures. So to fill out the rest of that bond exposure, we buy some treasury futures so that you are getting a full dollar of that bond exposure. And so, it, it yes, uh, his, like um, other managed futures managers will buy bonds, but they tend to be T-bills. They're not going out and buying you know, all core fixed income. Um, but you don't need to just do this with bonds, right? You could say, well, instead of buying bonds, you could buy equities. 
or you could buy gold, right? You could have a gold base and layer man shooters on top. The the nice thing about this return stacking concept is that we're trying to bring building blocks to market that allow people to uh, almost treat them like Legos to build whatever portfolio they are interested in building from a uh, overlay perspective. I like that idea. Um, on that note, when you go out, and I know you're traveling a lot, kind of promoting the products and your research, for something like this, like given that it's an ETF, so it's it's easily accessible, uh, do you see retail as like a large segment of your target audience? Or do you even think about that? Or are you just primarily focused on kind of institutional uh, and that's where you focus your marketing efforts, yeah, this, I guess? Uh, I am certainly not adverse to retail by any means. Um, but for my business, we tend to focus on financial advisors. Largely because if you think about just from a pure business perspective, for me to raise money, if I can find a financial advisory firm that's got $250 million and I can convince them to put 10% of their portfolio in my fund, I raise $25 million like like that, right? Right. Versus how many individual investors need to learn about my portfolio and allocate to it to raise $25 million. It's It's a substantial number and there are... Um, stricter hurdles that are required of you as a manager to advertise and market to individual investors versus financial professionals. So that meaning like a commercial, for instance, or yeah. radio ad. Okay. Yeah. So even just uh, something as simple as like um, the type of presentation that you can put together for that's that is made available publicly on a website that could be accessed by anyone versus the type of marketing materials you can have that are available to financial professionals only there's a different level of compliance and if it's going to be available to financial professionals only you are allowed to i don't want to say get away with but you're allowed to have um more sophisticated concepts that don't have to be disclosed as as onerously. When you have a piece of marketing material, like a fund presentation or brochure or fact sheet that's going to be available to everyone, FINRA really makes sure that um, people with the lowest level of financial education are protected. Um, and they really make sure that that you are not putting any particularly sophisticated or confusing concepts within those materials that could intentionally or unintentionally mislead those investors. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And the reason I asked that question is obviously my MO is my target audience is retail, right? And, and the thing that I find interesting, and for people who haven't maybe listened to your podcast, you have a lot of guests on where a lot of the focus is just not necessarily on strategies or products, but like how to talk to retail, you know, sorry, institutional allocators, how to manage expectations. And it's like a whole different landscape and a whole different world. And there's like, you, and you mentioned some frictions with like regulatory stuff or like things you can or cannot do. But on the other side, there's a lot of brick walls you got to get through to get somebody's buy-in as an RIA or, or, you know, these institutional firms, because you, you're basically selling, you need to sell this thing twice. You need to sell it to them in a way that they can then sell it to their clients. And I've heard all these episodes about, you know, even sometimes people go out of their way to design strategies that aren't necessarily the best performer, but they're the 
easiest to stick to because it doesn't matter what the returns are if that end client is going to bail at the wrong time. And so I kind of find that an interesting point because for retail, like for the, for me, putting these ideas out there and like just kind of sharing concepts. Okay. First educate people on, I started with options for instance, but that led to talking about leverage and margin and capital efficiency. And then introducing, okay, for me, my thought process changed sometime last year when, okay, stacking on beta is one thing, but I kind of like changed my outlook on just beta and the market in general in the next <laughs> decade. If, if there's all these other products and you can stack alphas and just in small chunks, right? You can get meaningful return without having to swing big on any one aspect. And so having products like yours and you know and there's a there's a bunch of them out there right simplify they have a bunch of capital vision stuff but it's it's weird i feel like there's this proliferation of like availability of these products in the retail space now and so my mission is kind of just to educate people because i think this is i feel like there could be a golden age for retail because there's just so much stuff available either like the traditional education of like buy and hold like I don't really subscribe to that, right? And then like 60-40 did terrible last year, for instance. And that's such like a staple. And so that that's why I mentioned again, like I, I I see from a business standpoint why like you don't really need to care about that side or that isn't a big aspect of your business. But like it could be, you know? Like I feel like if if, if that message gets out there and people realize like it's a nice tool to have. And so Yeah, so so to be clear, one of the things that I love about mutual funds and ETFs is that they are ETFs especially available to most retail individuals. Like if you have a, a brokerage account at Fidelity or Schwab or TD or wherever, as soon as you take an ETF live, most of those individuals have the ability to buy it. So it's not that I'm trying to skew away from individuals. I love having a product that educated individuals can look into. What's very difficult is, and this happens from time to time, I'll have individuals send me very thoughtful questions. And there's an interesting compliance line of how much I can actually engage with those individuals. From a regulatory perspective, you have to have a, a special license to technically sell to individuals versus it's a different regulatory burden to sell and anyone listening i'm using air quotes here sell to financial professionals right and so those are those are business choices you have to make um for me as a smaller boutique firm uh, the scalability really is in working with financial advisors because they represent a large number of households simultaneously that said uh i know a, a significant number of individuals who were early adopters of RSBT and, and we're very grateful of that. And I think for it to be a successful product long run, we need both adoption among financial professionals and, and individuals. And so um, it's not something we try to shy away from. I just am very cognizant of the regulatory and compliance burden that goes along with working directly with retail individuals and not financial professionals. Yeah, no, that makes sense. But, but again, I, I keep saying it's, this episode is kind of timely and we came full circle and, uh, I'm glad that like there there's a way because you know you put a lot of effort into the research you put out and kind of the value you share um, and now there's a way to like not only kind of listen to your concepts but a way to uh, directly implement your ideas I guess in, in a way that's it, 
again, accessible to retail. So that that's always been kind of my my process and mission. So um, that that's why I want to have you on. Uh, and I think that's kind of a nice segue in terms of like, uh, yeah, uh, it's just I'm glad that this product is out and hopefully it continues to grow um, and happy to kind of follow along. Uh, do you have what's your plans now for like what's the next thing? I know your website, there's there's another one coming on the horizon, I guess, that you're working on. Yeah. So, um, so again, this is a little hard for just uh, full transparency, talking about products before they exist. We're talking about products in registration when you're in the quiet period. Oh, sure. We can. Is, it's up to is, you. is an issue. So, so we have, no, no, no. So I, I can sort of talk about it a little bit. Um, we have a product that's currently through registration. Uh, we haven't launched it yet. It is a stocks and bonds product. So basically giving you, as as the prospectus is written right now, give you 90% exposure to global stocks, 60% exposure to treasuries. Uh, so it's a levered 60-40. And the idea basically there is um, there are wonderful alternative funds out there that we might not be able to replicate from a, a capital efficiency perspective. Right. Um, and so what you can do with a levered 6040, as an example, is uh if you have a hundred dollars in a 6040, you could put sixty-six dollars in a one and a half times levered 6040 and free up $33 or $34 to invest in an alternative. And it effectively creates an overlay where you have a 6040 plus that alternative 34% layered on top. That's an extreme example, but but what we're trying to do is basically bring that tool to market so that people can sell some core stocks and bonds, buy this product, all simultaneously freeing up capital to invest in the alternatives they want to invest in. As we go forward, um, you know, sort of towards the end of the year, what are we hoping to bring to market? I think we're hoping to bring to market um, a sister fund to the bonds and managed futures. That would be a stocks and managed futures. I think we're looking at launching a fund that would be something akin to a growth plus alternative yield. So something like stocks plus uh, some interesting carry strategies. And we're looking at something that is sort of a core balanced allocation plus maybe a tactical allocation on top. So we're, we're really hoping to have four or five building blocks out in the market by end of year. Um, of course, these things are are not cheap to bring to market. Registration is usually around seventy five thousand to one hundred thousand dollars to get them up and running operationally, and the carrying cost is usually two hundred to three hundred thousand dollars. So, yeah, we have to be thoughtful about the order we're bringing them to market and making sure that there's actual appetite in the market, so that we're not just you know lighting valuable capital on fire. Yeah, that that makes sense. And, and just from a, a selfish standpoint, you know, I, I I mentioned I'm kind of not bullish on. Uh, especially U.S. equity um, for the for the foreseeable future. So I have one strategy that I run with options that's basically a, a beta alternative that I get the beta of U.S. equities with with much less drawdown. So uh, any products that have uh, alternative exposure without the uh, the U.S. equities, <laughs> I would look forward to. So just something yeah. to note. Um, you know, it's 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 hard. Uh, it's another little insight into the way uh, the uh, the business side works. Um, Obviously, in the last decade, there's a huge bias towards U.S. equities. U.S. equities did incredibly well. Advisor portfolios tend to be biased towards U.S. equities. But the other interesting thing is when you look at the majority of the way portfolios are built, there's a delineation between U.S. international and emerging markets. Uh, advisors and financial professionals are very used to buying you know, a U.S. fund. They're used to going and buying an international fund. They're used to buying an emerging market fund. Global funds don't really exist. 
um, they tend to get orphaned. And so, you know, we have to be thoughtful about the way we bring product to market. Is it the way products are bought? Typically, um, you can you can bring a brilliant idea to market, but if it doesn't fit within the framework in which advisors and financial professionals typically build portfolios, you often find that they struggle to raise money. And the unfortunate reality is equity beta, U.S. equity beta is the predominant part of almost every portfolio that financial professionals run. So in terms of us having a piece of the portfolio that we can sell into, sell against, get an allocation from, it makes for a very good base yeah that makes sense and i guess that's kind of the difference from uh coming from uh institutional side versus somebody like me who can kind of just do things on our own but you know there's there's always another another side to it but Corey, that this this has been great a lot of good insight and nice to kind of know a little bit about what's coming up uh if you want to share any you know if, if people want to kind of follow you or learn more about your research or you want to share any of your uh, like where can they find you? Yeah, uh, I really appreciate you having me on. Uh, again, sorry for taking so long to, to get on. I'm glad we were able to get it scheduled. Uh, if people want to follow me, they can find me on Twitter. Uh, my handle's at C Hofstein. Uh, they can find the podcast you mentioned, Flirting with Models, on Apple, Spotify, YouTube. You can go to flirtingwithmodels.com if you want to find the transcripts. And if you want to learn more about my firm, you can go to thinknewfound.com or the ETFs. You can go to returnstackedetfs.com. It's a yeah. lot of stuff. Yeah, I know. We'll get all those added to the show notes for sure. But uh, yeah, once again, Corey, thanks so much. It's been a real privilege. Again, glad to go full circle and you were gracious to have me on. One of the only two retail background people on the show. So it was a great honor and really glad to have you on my show as well. Really appreciate it, David.